You know, many years ago, I was a student minister. And I'm going to tell you a story right now. You know, we've been going through this series called Big Faith. Exercising big faith, how to get big faith, how to have big faith, what we can do with that big faith, praying for God to show us a step of faith we can have. And if you haven't been a part of any of that, you can go, they're all online, they're on YouTube, they're on Facebook. Um, you can check all those out, they're on the podcast. Uh, but how to have big faith. And I'm going to share a story of how God came through in a moment of big faith. But what we're going to look at is sometimes that big faith that we want to have and are expecting God to deliver in a certain way, it doesn't always turn out like what we thought it would. All right? But I'm going to tell you a story about big faith first. As a student minister, uh, we would do all these events throughout the year. Uh, We had camp. We had discipleship weekend, D-Now. We had... um, little retreats we would do throughout the year where we would go off to a little campground deal on a Friday night after school and be there and then come back to the church on Sunday morning to be there in time for church that morning. Uh, it was at one of those retreats, and uh, it was a great experience. People were, were experiencing God in a great way, but there was this one youth girl, a student girl, uh, who had been harming herself for years. Actually, that weekend, we confiscated some knives and scissors she had brought with her to continue while we were there. Well, Saturday night comes around, and God's been teaching her some things throughout that weekend, and she comes and makes a decision Saturday night and gets saved. And she's talking to us at uh, at the back. There's a couple of us there, and we're talking with her, and she gets saved right there. And um, she talks about the scars that she has on her arm. She's been wearing long sleeves. She said even in the summer she wears long sleeves because she's really ashamed of, of the scars that she has on her arms. And she's so excited, though, that even though she has those, that God has just saved her in spite of some things. And uh, so we're talking about that. We pray about it. And the next morning, Sunday morning, uh, we're on the, uh, me and another member of the youth staff, we get up really early because we have to get back to the church before all the kids get back to the church. And we set up uh, at that time. We didn't have, like, all this, like, sound system in here. We had to take the sound system with us to the retreat and come back and set it up so when everybody came in, uh, the youth came in, there was sound and, and projector and all that jazz. And, um, and so we head back and, uh, and, and get there, set everything up. And right about then, the kids come in. And it was wintertime, and so it was kind of chilly. But as at every youth event, you always get a T-shirt. And so, you know, everybody's wearing their T-shirt, but they're wearing it over long sleeves, and they're wearing it, you know, uh, they'll, they'll have a jacket on, and they'll have it unzipped so you can see the design of the shirt and all this. But uh, that girl comes running in to the gym where we were meeting, and she's jumping up and down and screaming, Josh, Josh, you won't believe it. And she's not wearing a jacket. She's not wearing long sleeves. She goes, look, all the scars are gone. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, um, Last night, you probably had 15 or 20 on each arm, and they're gone now. She goes, I woke up this morning, and they were just gone. I didn't know what to do. And I said, great. I said, go out and live it. And so we shared, she got up and shared her testimony about being saved and the scars. And it was a phenomenal moment. And God delivered in a great way. And we can sit in our little green pews or sit in our living room on our couch and Say, you know, we've been reading all these great stories of faith and phenomenal experiences of faith, and God came through and delivered at just the right moment, and all this great stuff happened. That's cool, that girl. You know, her scars disappeared. And and, and you may be thinking, man, I've prayed God to do some big things, and it did not happen. But what if it's not like what I expect? What if it doesn't happen like what I thought it would? 
What if, what if, what if it, my expectation about the moment and how God is going to deliver does not work? What does that look like? Well, we're going to look at that today. You see, because in the middle of having big faith, sometimes we exercise faith about a situation that may not be God, but it may be us in anticipating what we want out of a situation. And we end up, I'm going to be a little transparent with you guys. I mean, this is me. Maybe you're, you know, you're super spiritual. This isn't you guys. Uh, you know, this isn't you online. This is me. And sometimes I end up praying for, a li- for God to give me a life, honestly, where I don't need him. I end up praying that God would, would, would make everything be exactly like I want it, and so I end up praying for a life where I don't need him. And in that, I, I have to come to the realization that God's never going to give me a life where I don't need him. Ever. Ever. And so I can pray for this whole big long list of things and try to pray God. I mean, we're not going to admit it, but that's what we're doing is pray God out of our lives. Pray his intervention out. And he's not going to answer those because he's not going to give us a life where we don't need him. We're going to have to rely on him at every moment. And so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 today. If you're using a Bible on the pew rack, it's on page 740, Daniel chapter 3. If you're online, it's right, it's right below me, all the notes and scripture. If you're in the room, you can do that too. Just go to our website and you can find all the notes and scripture there as well. But let me give you some backstory of what's going on here. You've got the nation of Israel and they were God's people. They were God's people not because they did a lot of good things, because if you read the Old Testament, they did a lot of bad things. They were God's people because God was going to bring Jesus from them. They were God's people because God was going to to bless the world through Jesus, who was going to be one of their number. And so they began to do things that were ungodly. And God would send a prophet and say, guys, you've got to get your lives right or things are not going to go your way. If you keep doing these bad stuff, then the inevitable thing's going to happen and it's not going to be good. You change what you're doing, how you're living, how you're, you're acting. And they would say, okay, good, great, thank you, prophet man. And they would go on doing what they wanted to do. Well, this went on for years and years, generations and generations. The people would live how they want. God would send a prophet. The people would ignore the prophet. Sometimes they would beat the prophet up or they would stone the prophet uh, or they would ridicule the prophet, but they would continue to do what they wanted to do. And this continued and went on and on and on. And then finally, after, you know, so many generations, I mean, we're talking dozens of generations of this happening, God finally said, okay, guys, we've gotten to the point, the inevitable end is here. And a nation comes in, an enemy nation called Babylon, and they conquer the people. They destroy this stuff all over the place. And the king of Babylon looks out and says, this is what we're going to do. All the people who can't help us, all the sickly, all the aged who can't make the trip, we're going to leave them here. All the people who are young and smart and good looking, we're going to take back with us. And we're going to brainwash them into our culture. And so that's what he does. He takes all these prisoners of war back to Babylon, and he puts them kind of in Babylon school. Say, you've got to learn all this. You've got to be this. You've got to act this way. And out of that, four guys stood above the rest. It was obvious even to this king who did not not only acknowledge the one true God, he did not believe he existed But he had to acknowledge there was something about these four guys that was different. It was because God was blessing them. Their names were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were four friends. God was blessing them in a phenomenal way. They were being faithful to God even as prisoners of war. They were being faithful to God. 
Even in the early days, they, the king was giving everyone in this Babylon school certain food to eat. And they said, we're not going to eat that food because God told us not to eat that food. He wants us to eat this kind of food. And, and the guy who's over the prisoner said, no, you guys got to eat this food because it won't just be your heads on the chopping block. It'll be mine because I'm in charge of you. So eat this food. And they said, well, here, put it to the test. Just for, you know, a handful of days, a couple handfuls of days, let's eat the way we want to eat and let everybody else eat that way. And then you look at us and tell us which one's better. And at the end of that time, if they look better than us, then we'll eat that stuff. And so they do this, but the guys who follow what God wants not only look better, but sound better, sleep better, act better. So, so this guy goes into the king, the man in charge of all the prisoners of war, and says, these guys have changed their dietary habits, and it's better for our kingdom, so let's change everybody's. So they made a set rule that because it worked for them, it's going to work for everybody. So everybody now had to do that. And the king saw this. And they continued to rise through the ranks because they were blessed not only uh, in, in their faithfulness, but in their wisdom. And it was obvious to the king. And so he promoted these four to way up high in the government. I mean, Daniel was almost, he's second in charge of everybody. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like right below him and reported. And they're over everybody else. And so, but look at the situation. Let's try to look at it from the Babylonians' perspective. You know, just like at your job, just like at our government, their government had a chain of command. You put in your years, you're supposed to get promoted at certain periods. Well, here come these prisoners of war, and they get promoted over these Babylonians. They're not too thrilled with this scenario. Well, in the course of time, these guys having been promoted, uh, the king of Babylon, his name is Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And in the dream, um, it's about this giant statue. Well, Daniel comes in, interprets the dream for him, but the king doesn't listen to Daniel's interpretation, takes it however he wants it, and thinks he's going to be phenomenal and great and amazing. Um, and so he decides he's going to build this giant statue, like in his dream, but it's going to be all about him. And so he goes out, and they've actually found a, a, a kind of a platform about four to six miles-ish southeast of the city of Babylon. They found it, archaeologists have found it, it exists now that's out there, and they believe that this was the platform where this statue we're re going to read about was built. And they built this statue, 90 feet tall. They put gold all around the outside, just outside of Babylon. And the king calls all of his government officials from all of his districts and provinces together, gathers them all around this giant 90-foot statue, and he says, okay, guys, we're going to play every instrument we have, and when we do, everyone bow down and worship the statue. And if you don't, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. They had a furnace right next to the statue that they used to heat the, the, the bricks and the different things they used to build this statue. And from that day, you know, the, the heat of the uh, uh, kiln, the, the furnace, was about 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's pretty hot. And so it's over off on the side. The statue's over here. All the people are gathered around the statue. And the king says, the second that the music plays, you bow down and worship the statue. Okay? Or you're going to get thrown in that thing. And so everybody hears this. And they're scared because they've seen other people get thrown in there. We see actually in history books, this was a common execution practice, was to throw people in furnaces. And so... They were all gathered around, they, uh, the music plays, everybody bows down, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So everyone's bowing, and those three guys are next to each other just standing up. 
Now, you remember those Babylonians they were promoted over? They didn't get the job, but they got them. Those guys go to the king and say, hey, king, your boys over here got, I got promoted are not bowing down to the statue. They're not doing what you told everybody to do. And so the king calls them in, and that's where we're going to pick up today. In verse 13 of Daniel chapter 3. So Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, that's a lot of instruments, and when I read that, uh, when you get the horn, the pipe, and all these, I don't know what a, you know, a trigon is, uh, but you get to bagpipe. That one, one of these things is not like the other kind of situation, but he's got them all. He just says, all the instruments we got, we're going to play them all. When you hear these instruments, uh, you fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now look at what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. He's setting himself up as greater than God. He's saying, no God can deliver you out of my hands. He's saying, I have absolute control over this situation. I know everything that's going to be happening, and it's all up to me. And if you don't do what I say, then I, in my control, will throw you into the furnace. And there's no God that's more powerful than me. That's the way he's phrasing this. And so I hear this. Imagine if you were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? Just put yourself in their mindset. You, as being a part of the king's entourage, as being a part of his government, you've seen guys executed in the fiery furnace. You've seen him do it. You've seen him get mad. You've seen him do what he's about to do. And he's mad now at you. How would you respond? What would you do? Well, look how th what they say. <laughs> in all kinds of boldness and gall, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, right off the bat, we don't need to answer you. <laughs> Here's the king who's about to throw him in the furnace. He's already giving them a second chance. that He doesn't give anybody a second chance. But these are some of his favorite guys. So he gives them a second chance. And they said, we don't need to answer you. Look at the next verse, 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now the phrasing in that verse is very important. Okay? He says, or they say together, God whom we serve, capital G, he is able to deliver us. Okay, that's the first thing they say. The second thing, he will deliver us out of your hand. He doesn't say how the deliverance is going to happen. He just said, deliverance will come. He leaves room in there because what these guys know in their great faith, in their big faith moment, is that it's not up to them to determine the how. A lot of times when I pray, I try to, you know, narrow my prayer so much that uh, God has to, you know, do what I say and obey my how in a situation, but they're saying God is able to do it and he will deliver, but they don't say how he will deliver. 
Look at what they say next. This is the verse of phenomenal faith that many of us would buckle under. Verse 18, but if not. Those three words, but if not. If God does not do what we anticipate him doing, if God does not defy you now in this moment, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. He says, so know this, king, even if God does not do what we're saying that we want him to do, we're not going to crumble in our faith. Our faith will not weaken. Even if God does not do what we're saying, what we, his creation, are saying, we will still not do what you're telling us to do. We will still have faith. Even if not, we will still have faith. So Nebuchadnezzar, who's already mad, Nebuchadnezzar, who is a man of a short fuse, gets even madder. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. Do y'all know anybody who gets so mad that their face changes and it looks like they're going to like shoot lasers out of their eyes? That's what we got going on here. Some of you are like, that's my mom. But it's not my mom. She watches it. It's not my mom, okay? It's not. It's other people's moms. And, uh, but there was this one time I was acting up in church, and she was in the choir, and I thought my heart was going to shoot out of my chest. Anyway. I'll tell you stories about my misbehavior as a child later. Uh, and so Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, remember, the furnace was about 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit. He's not saying heat it up to, uh, you know, eight, 9,000 degrees. He's, he's, by saying seven, he's saying heat it as high as it will go. Put in all the wood we got. Put in all the charcoal we got. Make that thing as hot as you can make it. He's so mad here. Make it as hot as you can make it. Uh, verse 20. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. That's also important. Because when they would execute people in a furnace, they would usually take the clothes off because they wanted it to last longer. Because the, if you threw them in with their clothes on, the clothes would catch fire and it would be over faster. And so he doesn't even wait for the preparation to take place. He's so mad. He says, just tie them up and throw them in. Don't even get them ready. Don't even do Just throw them in right now. And so they're dressed up. They're tied up. They're bound, which is also, I want you to remember that for just a minute. They are bound, tied up. Verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound, there's that word again, into the burning fiery furnace. So they grab the strongest men out of the army they can, bind up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the furnace, but the furnace is so hot, it kills the guys who are throwing them in. And they toss them into the fire. There's lots of speculation about how the furnace was designed. Most agree it had some kind of, um, you know, it's kind of 
boat out on the bottom and kind of small at the top with an opening at the top and a window and a door on the side. And they had some kind of scaffolding on the, on the top or on the side of it. And that they took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego along the top of that scaffolding and threw them in the top. So they fell down into the middle of the fire. But the flames, most likely the way we read it, are shooting up out of this thing. And as those guys go to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, they just fall down right there on top of the scaffolding and die because it's so intense and so hot. And they didn't have time to uh, put up precautions and safety measures because they just wanted the king to calm down. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm thinking too, if I'm reading this, not only is the fire hot and they're bound up, uh, but the fall isn't going to be good for them either. I mean, they're falling from this height down into the deal. And take it from a guy who has jumped from high places before. It, it does not turn out well. And so they fall down in there and smack into the bottom. And Nebuchadnezzar is, is incredibly angry. And he's looking in that window, that doorway. Verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of, a, of the gods. There's something different about this fourth guy who's walking around in there. We'll look at that in a minute. Verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace, as near as he could, and he, he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Notice, he does not ask for the fourth man to come out of the fire. He sees four, but he only asked for the three he put in to come out. He had just challenged their God and said that he was greater than their God. And now one is appearing in there who's like the son of a God. He doesn't ask that one to come out. He doesn't want to face that one. So he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out from the fire. And the satraps and prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not, uh, had, not had any power over the bodies of these men. Not only that, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. That one always amazes me. If you've ever done any grilling in your backyard, you're not in the fire, but you smell like it for the rest of the day. These guys walk out of the middle of it, and they don't smell like it at all. Not at all. And so they come out of the fire, uh, and all these guys, uh, the satraps, oh no, where is it? Uh, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this is important again. He does not acknowledge their God before this moment. He doesn't even believe their God exists. And now look at what he says. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. So he says, they set aside the king's command. So he's saying it's okay to disobey the king if you're obeying God. Whereas just a few minutes ago, he tried to kill him because of the very thing he's now saying is okay. Something has changed his mind here in these few seconds. His confrontation probably with God himself in the fire, who we believe most likely, most scholars believe it was Jesus in there in the fire with them. 
And so he now says, it's okay. They, they put aside the king's command. They yielded up their bodies. They sacrificed themselves rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Verse 29, therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He's a very violent guy. And their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So as though they had not already been promoted, now they're promoted even more. Now I want to show you one more thing. This is where this story ends, but something comes next that I think is very important because of who Nebuchadnezzar is. Angry man, violent man, thinks he's above everything in the entire universe, that he has control over everything in the universe. Now he's confronted with the power of God. And look at this edict he puts out for his entire kingdom. Chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God, that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mightier his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Here this anti-God king is praising God because of this encounter he has with God. He is amazed, and he doesn't just say it, he doesn't just declare it to the guys around him, he puts it on paper and, or what, you know, stone and sends it to their nation to be read out for everyone to see. It was a, an unbelievable thing, unbelievable thing. And, and he wasn't the kind of leader, uh, you know, he, he wasn't a politician who took advantage of religion to uh, get his position. He gained his position from, you know, violence because he's a violent guy and he was very overtly anti-God and here he comes out and says God is all powerful even more powerful than me and he says this and makes this declaration here and we see in that but I want you to back up a little bit we're going to look at this what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying what they are saying here when they say but if not you know they said to the king uh, we want God to Deliver us, uh, he is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if he does not, and they exercise the promise of God that is all throughout Scripture, that he will always be with us. In Isaiah 41, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when the fire rages and you are tossed into the fire by a life circumstance, by a life situation, maybe by physical opponents, you're thrown into a hard place to be. God says, I am with you. I am with you. You know, there's common thinking in this world today, even in God's church that is there and in the back corners of our mind, if we were honest with each other, it's probably in a lot of us as well, even subconsciously, where we may say that the more we do for God, the more he should do for us. Or sometimes when we pray something, we pray, God, I pray that you would do this thing. You know, God, I've been faithful to you. I've been to church this many times. I've given this much. I, I've served in Sunday school. I've served on committees. I've done everything. I, 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 God, last week I picked up a Kleenex that was on one of the pews. You know how nasty that is, especially in today's world? God, you better give me what I want. And sometimes we pray that way. 
God, give me because I did for you. God, I'm doing this for you, so give me, give me, give me. I'm, I'm, you know, being extreme here, but sometimes that's how we think. But God is not a moving buddy who feels obligated to help us out because we helped him out. In reality, we don't need to help. God doesn't need our help. I mean, he can do it. He wants us to be involved. He wants us to participate, but he doesn't need our help. You know, if, if, if we think that God will do for us because we have done for him, then we're not doing anything for him. Rather, we are doing for what we can get from him. If we think that God will do for us because we've done for him, we're just doing it for what we get from him, not because of who he is and how great he is and how phenomenal he is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing there in front of the king, they had a hope and a prayer that God would would physically remove them from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar safely. But then they said that, verse 18, but if not, we will remain faithful. But if not, we will continue to follow God. But even if not, this isn't going to shake our faith in you. We're going to continue to follow you. Even though we're having big faith that maybe we get thrown into the fire and the fire gets put out. We're having big faith. But even if not, we're still going to be faithful. But even if it doesn't happen, we're still going to have faith. We're still going to follow after God. You see, we... We all have, you know, people in our lives who only call when they want something from us or feel like they're owed something or they're entitled to something or some position. And sometimes when we pray, God, give me X because I did Y, that's what we're being to God. Saying, God, you owe me. You owe me. Now, we're not going to admit that. I mean, I mean, who's going to say, well, God owes me this? But sometimes that's the way, that's the way I pray sometimes. You know, that's, the way we, that's the way we act sometimes. I've been, or, or we see somebody, you know, like who's, had, who's lived a phenomenally faithful life and they're 89 years old and, and, and they're the pastor of this, you know, 10,000 member church and it's amazing. And then something terrible happens in their family, a tragedy. And we say, man, they were so faithful and God let them down. That's when we're thinking, that God owes us because of how we live and what we do. But that's not the way God works. That's not the way faith works. God's not a quid pro quo God. He's not, I'll give you if you give me kind of situation. That's not who God is. See, the way that I've come to discover is that the more I, the closer I get to God, the more that I trust him, and the more that I understand I'm not owed anything. I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not, he doesn't owe me anything at all because because of his grace and his offer of mercy, I owe him everything. I don't owe him anything. He doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything. Everything. And there's no amount of stuff I can do for God that will make him owe me anything because he owes me, or I owe him all, all, all. I remember as a kid arguing with my dad sometimes when I would get in trouble and say, it's my right to be able to do this. And he goes, son, you don't have any rights. He says, and God, you you can't assert your rights before God. Say, oh, no, I'm an American, and I have free speech, and I can. He says, no, you may be an American, and under, you know, Constitution, you have free speech. But as a Christian, does your free speech honor God or not? And so we have to ask ourselves then, 
does God owe me anything? Or am I acting as though God owes me something? Or should I act in faith and trust that maybe just, just potentially, possibly, could it be that he knows more than me? That he has greater control than I do? Now, we will say, I mean, if, you know, we will admit, okay, God's got better control than I do. God's more powerful than I am. God knows more than I, more than I do. But in reality, in how we act, a lot of times we try to, you know, control the situation with all of our power. We try to control it. Kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. I have control and no God can take that control out of my hands. We're not going to admit that, but sometimes that's how we act. I've got all control, and I want to know everything there is to know about a situation. But again, like I said at the beginning, what we're doing in that is we're trying to remove God from the equation. And saying we don't want God to have control. We don't want God to have all knowledge. I want all knowledge. I want all control. And there's no trust in that moment. There's no faith in that moment. And we need to have faith, and we need to have trust in what God has for us. You see, when we begin to live for God and we begin to do for God, we have to understand that doing for God is really an act of, of humble trust. That I'm acknowledging that God is greater than me. I am acknowledging that God's plan is so much greater than my understanding. Like these guys, but even if not, they're acknowledging that God's plan and God's control and God's knowledge, God's all knowledge, is greater than their own personal capacity. And so they're going to continue to live for God and continue to act in faith, even if life doesn't look like what they have planned for it to look like. They're going to keep have faith. Even if their big act of faith doesn't you know, come out the way they thought it would. Even if their 10-year plan falls apart on the first half of the first year, they're going to continue to follow after God because he is greater than them. That's what they're doing here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're acknowledging God's greatness, God's uh, uh, goodness, and they're trusting him for what is to come. God said this in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is greater than us. He knows more than us. He is more powerful than us. So if we are to live for him and act in humble trust of him uh, and doing for him acknowledges that how he is going to work out all of the broken and evil things in this world is beyond my capacity. I don't know how he's going to work everything together. But he promises that he will, Romans 8, 28. My God will, will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things he will work together for good. All things. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know how. I can list out my deal and say, God, if you would do this, I know it would be so great for your kingdom. But sometimes when I do that, again, I'm saying I know better than him. That's hard for me to swallow <laughs> because I'm a prideful person and I want to say I know most and I know best. But God says just step out and trust. And I've got to realize I can't know it all. I can't. My brain has to fit inside this skull. It's not big enough to pull in, not to pull in everything that needs to be known just about my life, much less the billions of people in the world. 
I can't know it all. I can't control it all. And so it really boils down to what this entire series is all about. Do I trust God or not? Do I trust him or not? So I have to choose then in that moment, do I trust God? I have to choose trust. Choose trust. Choose to trust. Choose to trust. Some people would say that trust is earned. Like some people say honor is earned, respect is earned. Actually, what we were reading in our uh, devotion this week, Micah, Jared, we saw Paul said, no, it's not earned, it's given. That to think honor is earned, to think respect is earned, to think trust is earned is is a worldly mindset. A Christ mindset is it's given by those who have Jesus. It's given freely. And so trust is given It's given even if I don't understand everything. Even if I feel like I understand everything, in reality, I don't. And so I have to choose to trust God. Even if my experience tells me one thing and and faith in God tells me something else, I need to choose to trust God no matter what my experience may say. Because my experience and my perception of my experience is flawed. Because I'm a flawed human being. And so whenever I see something or perceive something or make a judgment about something, that judgment is flawed because I'm flawed. My eyeballs are flawed. My, my brain is flawed. My heart is flawed. And so when I make a judgment call, it is flawed unless I'm relying on Jesus. I need to trust him and choose him and not allow this other thing to, to distract me from his purposes. Let me give you an illustration. I got a... Uh, chair here. I've used this chair before because this is the most comfortable chair in the building (laughs) and I want to sit in a comfortable chair. A chair company sent this to us a few years ago because they wanted us to buy a bunch of them and put them all in the sanctuary. I said, well, we don't want to buy them now, but you can feel free to send me the free sample. (laughs) I should put this in my office. It's a good chair. Um, But you sit in the chair, right? Every one of you sat in those green pews this morning, and you didn't think twice that that was going to hold you up. You didn't think twice. I didn't think twice this chair was going to hold me up, and I was even preparing this illustration. It's going to hold me up. And experience would say, because I've sat in this chair before, that it's going to hold me up. But if I really sat down and started to think about it, why is this chair going to hold me up? Is it because the cushion is, is powerful, because the back is powerful? Do I know the guys who, who screwed the screws in the bottom to hold the chair together? No, I don't know them. I don't know if they were distracted the day they screwed those screws in. I have no idea who they are. I don't, I don't know what they could do. Maybe they weren't paying attention that day. And I sit down in this chair and it falls apart. Maybe it's made of weak materials. <laughs> There's a chair we have at our house. We have these wooden chairs around our dining table. Uh, we've got four that we had, and then we kept having kids, so we had to get some more. And so we got two more that don't match the others, but they're a little bit higher off the ground. They're a little bit nicer. So Katie and I sit in those chairs. Well, a few weeks ago, I had one of those chairs in the front room, and I was playing with Ethan, uh, the baby, in that room. And uh, I was just sitting there, and he was playing, and I kind of, you know, just lean back, just kind of stretch. And the the, it had two posts here, a wooden post here, a wooden post here, snaps. And then, I mean, these are like, it's like that thick, squared all the way around. Snaps. I mean, I, mean, I just barely put my back on it like this. This side, this side just falls flat on the ground. Screws are still in. Screws were good. 
the wood failed. And I go, whoa, and I fall back and almost got impaled because there's spikes coming up now. And I just get up and I have to go in there. I said, Katie, you know those good chairs we had at the table? <laughs> I just broke one of those things. And so what I, what I ended up doing actually was cutting off the rest of the spikes and sanding it down. So now we've got a really nice stool at our house uh, um, that uh, we've got. But my experience then with chairs would tell me don't trust the chair. It's not reliable. It's not going to hold me up. It's not going to do what I need it to do. But I know that God will tell me you can sit in the chair and you'll be fine. And so experience would tell me, because I've had experience with broken chairs. We went on vacation a couple weeks ago. I sat in a chair that was broken. I don't know if it was broken before I sat down, but when I got up, it was broken. Maybe I'm just bad at chairs. I don't know. So experience tells me then, because of two weeks' worth of experience with chairs, that they're not reliable, that they will break. But I, for some reason, still continue to trust what I'm sitting on. My experience does not determine God's faithfulness, ever. God's faithfulness is consistent, irregardless of my perception of it. He's always faithful. His faithful, or my experience does not drive his faithfulness. His faithfulness exists independent of my observation of it. It's always there, always faithful. And so then I have to decide to choose to trust him. And choosing trust means giving up my desire for control. Choosing trust means giving up my desire for control. Choosing trust means I have to give up my desire to know everything. Because choosing trust means that I believe that God knows more and that he is stronger than I am. And so I have to uh, uh, live by these three phrases that I've said many, many times over these past six years. God is in control. God has a plan. God's plan is good. God is in control. God has a plan. God's plan is good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in this world is God's plan. God doesn't plan sin. That's not his plan. His plan was Jesus to fix our sin, to redeem us from our sin. But God has a plan, Romans 8, 28, and he's working all of the broken and evil things that exist in this world towards good because he knows more than I do and he's stronger than I am. God is in control. God has a plan. God's plan is good is good. He is always faithful. Even if I don't understand the ins and outs of what may be happening right now, what has been happening, what has been happening to our world in 2020, maybe I don't understand what's going on, but I still need to choose trust because God's faithfulness is not dependent upon my expectations. When we hit January 1 of this year, nobody had any idea where we would be come today. You can say, oh, I knew. No, you didn't, you liar. Nobody knew where we would be right now. Nobody knew. And my expectations for this year do not drive God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness should shape my expectations. My expectations, or God's faithfulness shouldn't depend on my expectations. His faithfulness should shape my expectations. So my expectations of how life is going to be should be based completely upon his faithfulness and not my own cleverness. 
about his faithfulness and who he is and what he, how he has designed the world. And then we have this encounter with Jesus, and that encounter with Jesus helps us to realize more and more every day that he is faithful and that we can choose trust. Because you know what happens when we encounter Jesus, even if we're in the fire, because you notice, I pointed it out earlier, these guys get thrown into the fire and they're bound, they're tied up. And they're tied up as though the life of the guys tying them up depended on it, because it did. They were tied up, so extremely tight, thrown in to the fire. And it was only in the fire that they encountered Jesus and found freedom. They encountered Jesus and found freedom in the fire. That doesn't mean that you will only encounter Jesus and freedom in the fire. But if we have faith in Jesus, every time we're in the fire, we will encounter him and find freedom. Every single time. No matter what the the fire is that you're experiencing. And it could be realistic and it could be uh, uh, in your mind. Either way, it's, it's a real experience for you. And if you're in the fire, you can still experience Jesus and you can find freedom, unbound freedom, if you trust him. And the fire may be overwhelming and it may feel like it's been turned up seven times what it was before uh, to the max capacity of what any human being can endure. But even there in the fire, you can experience Jesus and find freedom. And that can only be found when you trust him, when you have faith in him. Even in the moment of the but if not of this life, if you choose trust, you will experience Jesus and find freedom. Even if your life right now is like nothing you thought it would be. If where you are right now is not anywhere where you thought it would be. Maybe in your marriage, maybe because of your kids, maybe because of your parents. And you said, man, if I could go back 20 years, I know that this would not look like if I could just change this or change that or change them. It would not be like this. But in that, you've got to realize I can't control everything. I have to trust God. Trust God. And that's where the big faith comes in. You see, this message was inevitable and is a part of this series. We can talk all day long, big faith, big faith, great, yeah. But at some point, we've got to come to the reality of but if not, but if I'm having faith in something that I devised and not something God showed me, I need this moment of but if not, will I still be faithful? If my life doesn't turn out like how I thought it would, will I still be faithful? If they outlaw Christianity tomorrow, will I still be faithful? I had uh, somebody told me a prayer request just a few weeks ago. Missionary, they knew in a country where Christianity, real Christianity, is illegal. And this, uh, the, the father, it was a father, a mother, and they had several kids. He was, you can't really call it arrested, but every day they would come to his house at like 7 a.m., They would yank him out of his house, take him down to the police station, interrogate him and torture him and let him go home every night about eight. Every day for weeks. And they were, this guy and this organization he was working, were trying to get them out of the country. We're working towards it, trying to accomplish it. But since then, the issues have only escalated. And I had another missionary buddy who 
uh, was in a country and serving in a country. Every missionary friend of his was kicked out of the country. And he got an email that says, if you want out of the country, you have to get out now. Don't pack, leave. They did, and they made it here. This is going on. They still, though, choose to trust. You know what that guy told me? All their friends got kicked out of the country. They could have been taken and tortured. You know what he said? Man, we're praying to get back. We can't wait to get back and tell more people about Jesus. This is a husband, wife, several little, little kids. And they're trying to get back into a country that wants them dead because people need to know Jesus. That's faith. But even if it doesn't turn out like what they thought, they're going to continue in this faithful line, this faithful walk. These people have phenomenal faith. I would say more faith than I do. I mean, this is, this is amazing, this kind of faith. And so we have to decide in our lives, will I choose to trust God in the life I'm experiencing now? Will I choose to trust him? Will I, even if it's hard, even if I'm in the middle of the fire and it, it feels like it's getting hotter and it feels like I, I'm never going to get out of this and I've been in the fire for 20 years, am I ever going to get out of this? Will I choose to trust him now? Will I choose to trust him now? There will come a day when we're out of the fire, whether it's on this side of heaven or we're there. there will come, in, a, in, in a thousand years, we'll be sitting with Jesus, eating, you know, heavenly s'mores, discussing life and how great God is and how good God's always been and his consistent faithfulness that never failed. How will you describe your faithfulness now in this moment in 2020? Because you have every single one of you people in the room, online, you've been placed where you are for such a time as this. You've been given certain gifts by the Holy Spirit to be realized for such a time as this. This is your moment. You don't get another one. You're here for a set number of years, and then you're gone, and and are you going to do with this moment what God's put you here to do? In faith, will you trust God for this moment right now? Trust him. Maybe you need to trust him for the first time. Trust him for the first time. Believe that Jesus is God's son, that he came to this earth And he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. And if you believe that, then you are guaranteed heaven. Guaranteed. No matter the sin you do tomorrow, it's already been forgiven because of what Jesus did. It's already taken care of. And in that, that's where we do what we've been talking about. You choose trust. You say, that doesn't make any sense. Not in our human brains, no. But in spirit. Spiritual faith, it makes all the sense in the world. He offered us grace when we didn't deserve it. He offered us mercy when we didn't deserve it. He offered us love when we rejected it. He continues to offer that. If we believe we gain it, will you believe today? Will you trust today? Will you have faith today? Maybe you are like the father who encountered Jesus, who wanted his son healed And he said, Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Help me in the areas of my life where I lack the faith. Help me to turn that faith on in those areas because I want to follow you. I want to live in faith. Even if I'm in the fire, I want to be faithful in the fire and encounter Jesus and be free. So will you trust Jesus today?